Well, let's uh, go ahead and pray and get started. I'm sorry I'm a little late. Blessed Lord, who caused all Holy Scripture to be written for our learning, grant us so to hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and the comfort of your Holy Word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in our Savior Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Um, another thing uh, that Protestants don't believe that Catholics do, well, at least Catholic clergy and Catholic doctrine, is that marriage is one of the seven sacraments. And although not completely in the sense that uh, the Roman Catholic Church would teach it, I think there is a sacramental aspect to marriage. But by, by sacramental, I simply mean... Um, I don't know, an invisible sign. Uh, I mean, a visible sign of inv invisible truth. At least marriage in the sense that God intended it. And I think in Song of Songs, we get an aspect of that. Not, not entirely, but that's part of it. So, as I said last week, uh, the Song of Songs is lyrical poetry. A lyrical poem is a is a song, it's poem, poetry that you sing. The Song of Songs is lyrical poetry that celebrates the romance, in intimacy, marriage, and sexual union of a young man and young, young man and a young woman in love. That's what it seems to be, and that's what it is. It expresses physical attraction, desire, and sexual intimacy in evocative ways with symbol and metaphor in a nuanced and subtle way without crudity, vulgarity, or tawdriness. Uh, there, that's worrying. As I also pointed out uh, last session, the, the central theme of the song is the love felt between a man and a woman as they approach and experience their wedding. That's as Dwayne Garrett, the well-known Old Testament scholar, puts it as well as its consummation. So it is about sex, but it's also about marriage, and it's also about romance. It is about true romance. The subordinate themes of the song are longing and anticipation, mutual desire, attraction, admiration, the frustrations of love, the exclusivity of love, the beauty of love, and the power of love. I add an asterisk to that, and I think it's on the notes. Did everybody get the notes? Uh, it's just one sheet. Did everybody get one? Um, and I added that um, because it, it's, it is subordinate, and even um, it seems almost like an afterthought in the song. It's in the last chapter only. Well, it's, it's said most directly in the last chapter. I think it's implied throughout the song. It is important for understanding the central theme as well as for extending our study into theological application. I almost wanted to say the strength of love powers more apt because every time I 
say that term, the power of love, I get that Huey Lewis in the news song in my head. So if I start singing, just well, you, you, had to, you had to be in the 80s. Okay, the song is uh, obviously, again, as I said, a lyrical poem of young love and true romance as God intended. Uh, I, I mentioned before there's an identic quality to it. It's not absolute or complete, and I'll mention one fly in the ointment uh, coming up in a few moments here. The context is in anticipation and fulfillment of intimacy in marriage. The wedding and the wedding night are anticipated in chapter 3, 6 through 4, 15. And the lover calls his beloved bride five times in uh, chapter 4, leading up to the sexual consummation of the marriage in chapter 5, verse 1. And I mention this because there are some commentators, uh, mostly non-traditional ones, who are going to say that it really doesn't have anything to do with marriage and that, in fact, sexuality is the whole point. Marriage is an afterthought and the sexual intercourse takes place outside of the context of marriage. I don't know how they get that, given what I'm about to read. But um, there are some who say that. But I think the context is clear that we're talking about sex within marriage right here. Um, let me read uh, chapter 3, verse 6 through 11, and chapter 4, verses 8 through 12. Um, who is... And, and I'm hoping you've read the Song of Songs. I'm hoping. If you haven't, then I will encourage you to do so. We're pretty much taking a guided tour. Um, the, this takes place... Um, almost out of the blue. So even though it sounds like I'm saying it out of the blue, it actually takes place almost out of the blue in the context of the song. Who is this coming up from the desert like a column of smoke, perfumed with... You get this idea of a chariot column moving through the desert or the wilderness, kicking up dust. Perfumed with myrrh and incense, which seems odd given that context, but remember... We're talking about symbols and metaphors here. Perfumed with myrrh and incense made from all the spices of the merchant. Look, it is Solomon's carriage, escorted by 60 warriors, the noblest of Israel, all of them wearing the sword, all experienced in battle, each with his sword at his side. I'm telling you, this is a romance, not a war story. Prepared for the terrors of the night. King Solomon made for himself the carriage. He made it of wood from Lebanon. Its posts he made of silver, its base of gold, its seat was upholstered with purple, its interior loving in, lovingly inlain by the daughters of Jerusalem. Come out, you daughters of Zion, and look at King Solomon wearing the crown, the crown with which his mother crowned him. On the day of his wedding, the day his heart rejoiced. It's all the pomp and circumstance and glory of a wedding. It's not really about military preparedness or anything like that. Um, but in this first passage, we aren't really intended to see Solomon as the lover in the song, but as a poetic symbol. Uh, I believe Solomon wrote it, but it's not really about Solomon's marriage. Uh, as Wayne Garrett again puts it, every young man... In love is a Solomon in all his glory. So 
Solomon himself makes himself a metaphor. Yeah, you can do that if you're a poet. So reading chapter 4, verses 8 through 11. Now, 8 through 12. Come with me from Lebanon, my bride. Come with me from Lebanon. Descend from the crest of Amana, from the top of Sanir, the summit of Hermon. From the lion's den and the mountain haunts of the leopards, you have stolen my heart, my sister, my bride. You have stolen my heart. With one glance of your eyes, with one jewel of your necklace, How delightful is your love, my sister, my bride. How much more pleasing is your love than wine. And the fragrance of your perfume than any spice. Your lips drop sweetness as the honeycomb, my bride. Milk and honey are under your tongue. The fragrance of your garments is like that of Lebanon. You are a garden locked up, my sister, my bride. You are a spring enclosed, a sealed fountain. Uh, in this second passage, the metaphor and symbolism is very rich and its connotations are clear to us. Um, there's richness, luxury, beauty, as well as direct reference to the beloved as the bride. Now, over in chapter 4, 1 through 5, some of the symbolism seems strange to us. And I'll go ahead and, and read that. Because there are a lot of metaphors and symbols in Solomon, Song of Solomon, which kind of have to be translated or updated for the day. For how beautiful you are, my darling. Oh, how beautiful. Your eyes behind your veils are doves. Well, that seems well enough. But then your hair is like a flock of goats descending from Mount Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of sheep just shorn coming up from the the washing. Each has its twin, not one of them is alone. Your lips are like a scarlet ribbon. That seems well enough. Your mouth is lovely. Your temples behind your veil are like the halves of a pomegranate. Your neck is like the Tower of David, built with elegance. On it hang a thousand shields, all of them shields of warriors. Your two breasts are like two fawns, like twin fawns of a gazelle that browse among the lilies. So some of that symbolism seems strange to us. Nevertheless, in their context, they're apt and meaningful. And and I'm not going to take the time to explain it in detail, but obviously um, hair like a flock of goats uh, refers to the to the, to the loveliness of her hair, like uh, the, the darkness and flowiness of the hair of a flock of goats. Your teeth being like a flock of sheep, well, the, clearly talking about white sheep here, and not one of them missing. It means, of course, she's got all her teeth, which, you know, in an ancient culture with little dental care, that's, that's really important in a prospective bride. Calling one's beloved my sister is also strange to our ears, but it was a common metaphor in ancient Near Eastern poetry. You'll find it in Egyptian poetry and Mesopotamian poetry. The reference of, of calling uh, your, your lover your sister. Uh, the garden and fountain of 412 are metaphors for the bride's uh, sexual love, uh, sexual intimacy, and that they are, quote, locked up, enclosed, and sealed, symbolize her virginity and purity. 
And again, I won't um, explain all the symbolism, uh, but it is heavy with symbolism, and some of them are perfectly clear, clear, and and they they translate well, and some of them are just like metaphors and and sayings from oh you know 60 70 years ago i still don't know what you're the bee's knees mean but i'm sure it meant something um or 23 skidoo does anybody know what 23 skidoo means why not 24 skidoo and what is a skidoo oh a skidoo i get it anyway uh the subordinate themes are interwoven throughout the song I mean, you'll, you'll find uh, anticipation and longing in the beginning chapters. We'll look at that, but you'll also find them towards the end, even in chapter 6 and 7. Uh, there is a loose outline, though. And by outline, I don't mean you can arrange verse by verse, chapter by chapter into this. I mean, the story, it isn't really a story because it's not a ballad. It is really more like a popular love song, a lot more involved than anything that is written today. So the loose outline, the lover and his beloved express their desire and longing for one another. The lover and his beloved anticipate their wedding and the consummation of it. The lover and his beloved become one flesh, and that's what it says in Genesis 2, chapter 24, the man and the woman will become one flesh, which is um, an apt expression for a sexual metaphor. And in some sense, you could even think of Song and Songs, the Song of Songs, as a, like a commentary on Genesis 2, 18, 25, uh, 18 through 25, which concludes this way. I'll go ahead and read part of that. Um, for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man and brought her to the man. The man said, and I'm sure he exclaimed it. I'm sure he expressed it with great emotion and delight. Because remember, he had just finished naming the animals, and I'm sure we all like dogs, but... You know, the dog's not a person. Um, and I do love dogs. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. She is like me, but different from me. We complete each other. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. So the, the song is an expression of the course of romantic love leaning, leading up to marriage and sexual union. And that the way it expresses the course of romantic love, when you, when you understand the psalm, the song and, and you get with its rhythm and its metaphors and symbol, it resonates with couples throughout the ages. It really does, even, even in some of its terms. Uh, in prosaic terms, uh, Old Testament Tom Gledhill described the progress, progress, the progress of romance as he sees, as he sees it, it 
explored in the Song of Songs. So this is what he writes. Any developing relationship will start with the first stirrings of the recognition of kindred spirits. That's true. Fired by the attraction of physical beauty. Romantic affection may then begin to blossom as the couple makes shy, tentative initiatives in getting to know one another. Over a period, or sometimes very suddenly, the two begin to recognize that something is happening between them, and they long to spend more time in each other's company. As the possibility of their future together becomes clearer, their thoughts and desires progress towards more physical expressions of their mutual love. From the first holding of hands and the cautious peck on the cheek, the relationship progresses in more tactile ways to closer embracing and caressing and more intimate kissing. Uh, it, if you've ever watched that comedy show, The Big Bang Theory, uh, you'll catch my meaning when I say I kind of feel the spirit of Sheldon Cooper in that description right there. But it's apt, and it's, it's true, and I like it because it's over-analytical like me. But this really is how romance goes. Not every detail is the same because no two people are alike. But the course of romantic love really does progress like that. Um, he does catch, Gledhill's description catches the university of romantic love expressed in the song, even if it is like pinning a dead butterfly to a display board. That's a metaphor, not to be taken literally, rather than watching it flutter through the garden. Uh, the, the reading the song is like watching the butterfly as it makes its progress through the garden. Gledhill concludes his analysis by asking how the romantic lovers can make sure that the degree of tactile intimacy at any stage matches the progress towards marriage. For, he says, the sanctity of marriage must be preserved at all costs and full sexual union is preserved for that state alone. That is something I think, well, the kids need to hear these days. Well, the, you know, everybody who's, who's, who's in a romantic relationship needs to understand the problem of going too far too fast. Um, it's... The common wisdom these days is, well, you've got to find out if you're sexually compatible or not. Well, no, that's really not the case. You've got to find out if you're emotionally compatible, uh, cognitively compatible maybe, but um, most people are sexually compatible. That's simply the way anatomy works. Um, anyway... Uh, the romance of the song begins in chapters 1 and 2 with expressions of mutual attraction and desire. And I'll, I'll reread a portion I read last week. Chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, uh, and 9 th through 16, and chapter 2, 1 through 4. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is more delightful than wine. We, we sort of come on this in what Aristotle said in an analysis of plot uh, in media res, right in the middle of the thing. 
uh, right, uh, I think he was talking about Homer's uh, Iliad and Odyssey. Because when you come in the, the, uh, the Iliad, I mean, it's, you're right there. There are the Greeks and the Trojans are having a war. You don't even know what the war is about, and you find out. Well, what's going on here? Pleasing is the fragrance of your perfumes. Your name is like perfume poured out. No wonder the maidens love you. Take me away with you. Let us hurry. Let the king bring me into his chambers. Uh, she is anticipating, longing, expressing desire. Verses 9 through 16, chapter 1, verses 9 through 16. This is the lover. This is the young man. I liken you, my darling, to a mare harnessed to one of the chariots of Pharaoh. I'll try and explain that in a minute. Your cheeks are beautiful with earrings, your neck with strings of jewels. We will make you earrings of gold studded with silver. There are, there are two interpretations of what that, that expression, you're like a mare harnessed to one of chariots of Pharaoh. It does not mean, well, you look like a horse. It doesn't mean that. Either it's Pharaoh's uh, horse and mare all decked out in fancy finery for drawing Pharaoh's ceremonial chariot. That does make some sense. Uh, the other interpretation is that uh, one never actually hitched mares in general to chariots because most chariots were pulled by stallions, and if you put a mare in there, well, it'd just get them really excited and out of control. And so the lover is saying, you just drive me crazy, baby. That's, that's how it would be put today, okay? I liken you to a mare harnessed to one of the chariots of Pharaoh. Now, not being a Hebrew scholar, I, I really not, can't make a decision to either one of those two interpretations, but I like the second one, uh, and I like my paraphrase, you drive me crazy, baby. Um, and in verses 2, 1 through 4, the beloved says, I am a rose of Sharon, a, a lily of the valleys, and the lover, like a lily among thorns, is my darling among the maidens, and the beloved... Like an apple tree among the trees of the forest is my lover among the young men. I delight to sit in his shade, and his fruit is sweet to my taste. He has taken me to the banquet hall, and his banner over me is love. There used to be a song on that if you were raised in Baptist and evangelical circles, and it had nothing to do with what the Song of Solomon is about. It was about you and Jesus. Um, these kinds of expressions recur in many places, seriously. Uh, chapter uh, 4, 5, 6, 7, not quite every chapter of the book, but close to it. So desire and attraction call forth admiration and delight in one another. So in chapter 5, verses 10 through 16, am I still there? Yes. My lover, the beloved, my lover is radiant and ruddy, outstanding among 10,000. You're a hunk, baby. His head is purest gold. His hair is wavy and black as a raven. His eyes are like doves by the water streams, washed in milk, mounted like jewels. His cheeks are like beds of spice, yielding perfume. His lips are like lilies dripping with myrrh. 
His arms are rods of gold set with chrysolite. His body is like polished ivory decorated with sapphires. His legs are pillars of marble set on bases of pure gold. His appearance is like Lebanon, choice as its cedars. His mouth is sweetness itself. He is altogether lovely. This is my lover. This is my friend, O daughters of Jerusalem. And in chapter 7, 1 through 6, we get the lover expressing his admiration for his beloved. How beautiful your sandaled feet, O prince's daughter. Your graceful legs are like jewels, the work of a craftsman's hand. Your navel is a rounded goblet that never lacks blended wine. Your waist is a mound of wheat encircled by lilies. Your breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle. And he goes on and on, expressing his admiration. And most of this is physical. Um, I don't think it's wrong to say, well, we can extend that kind of uh, admiration that we express in a relationship to the, to the psychological, to the cognitive. Um, you know, I was better looking when I was a young man, but I was never a hunk. Can, can you imagine that? So... so uh, I didn't drive the girls crazy with my good looks, you know. So, so I had so I had to learn calculus. Um, that's that's why all the girls are attracted to me. Um, actually, I never learned calculus. <laughs> anyway, the lovers' anticipation um, and their delight in one another focuses on their approaching wedding uh, in chapter three, six through four, fifteen, which I already read before. Talks about the bridal, uh, the bridal procession, the wedding procession, and then it's not exactly talking about the wedding itself, but there are expressions again that I read before, and the repetition of uh, the lover calling his beloved his bride. The sexual consummation of the marriage is expressed in chapter four. Verses 15 through five, verse one, that's two verses. And so I'm going to focus on that. That'll be one of the aspects of the romantic relationship we'll focus on next week. Because that's, that's like the center of the book. This book kind of moves from, from both ends to the middle. That, that's how it works. I mean, it, it conceptually. I mean, if you were singing it, you start at the beginning and go to the end. But conceptually, it kind of moves from both ends into the middle. And uh, again, popular love songs do that kind of thing too. So the beloved repeats an injunction to the daughters of Jerusalem in chapter 2, verse 7, chapter 3, verse 5, chapter 8, verse 4, not to arouse or awaken love until it so arises. A warning not to go too fast, too soon when it comes to physical intimacy. So this is, of course, good advice. Um, there, there is a lot of physical intimacy in this, but you never get the sense of the line being crossed, of it actually becoming fully sexual until after that marriage. It's, it's not coincidence that you have the, 
wedding procession in chapter 3, and then the expressions uh, about the, the lover's delight in his bride leading up to the consummation in uh, chapter 4, verse 15, and chapter 5, verse 1. It's not only good advice from a moral framework. Uh, you know, you, you shouldn't do that because God said so. But why did God say so? Um, this is why, this is one thing I think young people and children need, that these aren't arbitrary rules that God can do. Well, I'm God. I can tell people to do what I want. That's not why he expresses these things. Uh, it's good advice from a moral framework, um, but also because expressing our sexuality in the way God intends, which is within the security and the bonds of marriage, brings more joy and fulfillment than trying to short-circuit the course of romance or isolate the sexual act as a hedonistic end in itself. And that's what, uh, you have to be careful with the word romance. That's why I say true romance, because romance in popular culture today is really just focused on the sexual encounter. And, and that's it. And then you forget about all the rest. You forget about the bonds of marriage, the security. Um, I don't know how many, and I, I, didn't, I didn't make this into a dissertation where I was going to go out and actually cite my sources and stuff, but you have probably read yourself the repeated um, polls that are taken and studies that are done to show that married women and Christian married women in particular at least express, express more satisfaction with their sex lives, well, men too, uh, than anybody else. Now, I read these polls and I often wonder, well, who, who do they talk to? Because if I got a phone call asking me to express myself about my sex life, I would say, no, that's none of your business. But anyway, somebody is taking these polls, and, and those who actually experience it, sexuality, the way is it expressed in the Song of Songs and in the way that God intends it, uh, report more satisfaction with their sex lives than others. So take that for what it's worth. Finally, uh, for today, uh, we'll, we'll talk about the frustrations about love. The song does express some of the, 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 the frustrations of love. This seems one of the few ways in which the flowing grace and serenity of Eden are interrupted in the song, if only briefly. And really only in a sense of... There, there is an, an undercurrent of you know, longing and anticipation and unfulfilled desire at some point. And that can be a little frustrating. But there are two other sequences I'll talk about in a minute. Well, as Shakespeare wrote in A Midsummer Night's Dream, the course of true love never did run smooth. And the longings and anticipations of the lovers themselves... They are in themselves a source of frustration. You know, thwarted desire can lead to frustration. As they must restrain the full expression of their physical intimacy until the right time. It is frustrating for us sometimes to do it because we do live in a fallen world and we want what we want and we want it now. Oh, gee, that's a Queen song. <laughs> 
I want it all, I want it all, I want it all, and I want it now. And, and that's, that's the mantra we get. We don't understand the, the, for lack of a better term, satisfaction that, that longing and anticipation and waiting for the right time before fulfillment of desire can bring. So there is frustration involved there. In two uh, sections, three, one through five, and five, two through eight, the beloved voices her anxiety and frustration in two sequences, one before the wedding and consummation and one after. And let me read portions of those in chapter three, verses one through five. All night long on my bed, this is the beloved talking the woman, All night long on my bed, I looked for the one my heart loves. I looked for him, but did not find him. I will get up now and go about the city through its streets and squares. I will search for the one my heart loves. So I looked for him, but did not find him. The watchmen found me as they made their rounds in the city. Have you seen the one my heart loves? Scarcely had I passed them when I found the one my heart loves. I held him and would not let him go till I had brought him to my mother's house, to the room, to the room of the one who conceived me. Daughters of Jerusalem, I charge you by the gazelles and by the does of the field, do not arouse or awaken love until it so desires." Um, that expression uh, brought him to my mother's house is also kind of debated what does it mean. It probably means, and goes back to the reference in, in Genesis, uh, a man shall leave his mother and father and cleave unto his wife. So going to the mother's house is somewhat of a euphemism for marriage. Um, that's one interpretation. That's actually the only one that elucidates that at all. So I think that's probably correct. In 528, there's another sequence that is similar. Um, Both of these may be dream sequences, and you can see some of the similarities. I slept, but my heart was awake. Listen, my lover is knocking. Open to me, my sister, my darling, my dove, my flawless one. My head is drenched with dew, my hair with the dampness of the night. I have taken off my robe. Must I? The, this goes back and forth. That was the lover. And then the beloved. I have taken off my robe. Must I put it on again? I have washed my feet. Must I soil them again? The beloved continues. My lover thrust his hand through the latch opening. My heart began to pound for him. I arose to open for my lover, and my hands dripped with myrrh, my fingers with flowing myrrh on the handles of the lock. I opened for my lover, but my lover had left. He was gone. My heart sank at his departure. I looked for him, but did not find him. I called him, but he did not answer. The watchmen found me as they made their rounds in the city. They beat me. They bruised me. They took away my cloak, those watchmen of the walls. O daughters of Jerusalem, I charge you, if you find my lover, what will you tell him? Tell him I am faint with love. Uh, there is many uh, attempts to explain these two passages as there are commentaries on Solomon. So I'm just going to give some, some general ideas. One or both may be a recounting of dreams. Neither is a narrative of actual events in the real world, even within the framework of the psalm. Um, 
they, they both seem to be dreams. They both express the beloved's deep feelings and perceptions about her first sexual experience and her lover. The first one is prospective, looking forward to it and anticipating, and the second is retrospective. And all I can say is that it does express some sort of sense of uh, incomplete fulfillment and a little and and a sense of frustration with the experience of romance itself. There is another Old Testament scholar, Dennis Kinlaw. He concludes this: there is a realism in the song that merits our respect. For every moment of ecstasy, there seems to be the moment of hurt and pain. And we'll end there with the moment of hurt and pain. And I think there is a a truth to that. Um, Does anybody have any questions? Or what kind of questions do you have? Do we have time? Uh, Five minutes. That took longer than I thought. I was actually, I hope I wasn't speaking too fast because I was trying to finish a little early. Does anybody have any questions about? About an observation. Okay, or observations, Um, sure. So from where I'm sitting, it seems like there are those multiple exhortations, don't think, take things too fast. Right. They don't really tell you, like, what's too fast, what's not too fast. No, it's, it's, sort of gray, right? it's not a dating manual. Correct. So, um, and dating manuals are kind of suspect anyway. So, does anybody, uh, the most famous dating manual, well, non dating manual, I Kissed Dating Goodbye by Joshua Harris, who repudiated his book and then he repudiated Christianity itself. So, um, if you want dating advice, um, well, talk to your parents, which kids never do. Um, Proverbs is good for that. Proverbs gives all the warnings, uh, the, most of the moral warnings. There's, there's not much moral warning in Song of Solomon. But, but remember, you know, Solomon wrote uh, more than half of the book of Proverbs. Um, so there is that question there. And, of course... How you actually approach... I have nothing against dating myself. I did not kiss a goodbye. I didn't give much dating advice when I was teaching adolescents. I gave them... I, gave, I told them two things, really. First of all, um, when, when they had high school sweethearts, I, I used to say, remember, most high school romances end. Some of them don't. Um, I actually got a big thank you from two kids who... Uh, Eventually got married, they thanked me for seating them next to each other in 10th grade Old Testament class because they, they met each other, they fell in love, and they eventually got married. But that doesn't happen very often. Uh, and then I said, you should never date anybody that you could not even conceive of marrying. I'm not saying you, you have to be thinking about marriage when you date, but uh, particularly a Christian should never date anybody which you, I could never think of ever possibly marrying this individual. That's it. I never gave any more advice on dating. Um, I didn't give that much dating advice to my daughter, too. Um, <clears throat> I wish I'd given more implied advice to some of the gentlemen, you know, like, you know, try that and I'll kill you kind of stuff, you know, as a dad, you know. Anyway, 
but you're right. Uh, they say don't, don't go too far too fast. Do not uh, arouse or awaken love until it so desires, until the right time. Um, and they, they don't give a lot of practical advice. They just give the principles. But it is a lyrical poem. So. What's interesting, though, is there's obvious, it's not like that uber purity culture thing where you right. shouldn't even kiss until your wedding day. Right. So it's, it's definitely not that. Which didn't make sense to me. Well, the, yeah. uh, Joshua Harris is responsible for a lot of that. He, yeah. he, uh, now, I've got, the, the purity is a good thing, but like you say, making it a virtual cult wasn't necessarily... And I think parents have a lot more. You know, even up until high school, um, I mean, my daughter listened to me. She had to. She had to. We had to. She had to drive with me to school every day because she went to Christian Academy. So we talked about that. Well, mainly theology, but back and forth all the time. Uh, but but kids will listen to their parents as long as their parents uh, are consistent and honest and. They don't have too many issues they're dealing with, too. So that says a lot about getting your own life straight. I'm drifting, okay, um, into dating advice and parental suggestions, but there really isn't a lot of that in the Song of Solomon. It really is a uh, delightful uh, celebration of uh, the joy of sex, unlike the book called The Joy of Sex, which... Can't say I ever read the whole thing, but uh, strikes me as being clinical and crude. Any other questions, Nick? You've got to erase some of this. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Anybody else have any questions or comments? Um, next week we'll we'll wrap up mostly with the Song of Solomon, and then the following week uh, we'll we'll. Finish. There might be a few words on the Song of Solomon, but there'll be a few words on all the other wisdom literature too and sum up what we've been doing uh, for the past many months. Anyway, thank you all for coming.